John chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Uh, John chapter 20. And this is kind of a, I, I'm dropping a new series on you this week. I, I wasn't sure if I would be uh, doing it this week or not, but uh, I, I've been tossing around the idea of getting into the book of John for a number of years, um, a couple of years at least, and um, wanting to do one of the Gospels. John was the one that kind of kept rising to the top, and, um, and as I was studying, thinking about this, it just became clear this is the one I ought to do. And uh, it, there's so much here. I mean, it's, it's, I felt like, kind of like when I was beginning the book of Genesis, and I'm not really sure where to start, because how do you start to eat an elephant, you know? Um, one bite at a time, I guess they say, but I feel the same way. I heard one commentator say that John's like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant can swim. So it's, it's, it is on a level where children can understand most of us, the first verse we memorize may have been John 3.16, but it's also, there's such depth that we can't mine it um, without study in years. We could spend the rest of our lives trying to mine the depths of a book like John. Um, and so, where do you even start? Well, uh, I'm not going to start at the beginning. I'm going to start in John chapter 20, and those that are familiar with these verses, you probably know why. Let's go ahead and stand as we read a couple of verses out of John chapter 20. And uh, John actually gives his purpose for writing this book in these two verses. And in some ways he gives us his, this is his purpose, this is his, this is the reason, this is what he was trying to do. And so I'd like to read these verses and today look more at an overview of the book of John and then begin our verse-by-verse -verse exposition, which is typically what we do, um, a verse-by-verse -verse exposition uh, we'll get into that uh, maybe the next time or the time after that, uh, dep depending on if I can finish these notes in a reasonable time today. So, um, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says this, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ... The Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, it's interesting that he says, there's, there are plenty of things that I didn't write in this book. And the reason for that, look at the last verse of the, uh, the last two verses of John 21. It says, this is the disciple which testifieth of these things... And wrote these things, that, and we know that his testimony is true. He's talking about John himself, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. In case you're wondering if John was struggling to find examples to use in the life of Christ... ...to convince us of his deity. He said, I wasn't struggling for examples. And the opposite is true, in fact... ...that I could have written volumes and volumes... ...that the world could not contain... ...of the, the signs and wonders and miracles... ...that Jesus Christ did. And instead he gives us just a few... ...because that's all he can really fit. Boy, what a, I mean, what a thesis... Um, John clearly gives his purpose for writing. He wrote to prove something so that we can know something 
in order for us to believe in something. He wrote to prove something in order for us to know something in order for us to believe in something. And he does it in such a way that you are confronted with who Jesus Christ is. You have, listen, if you believe what Jesus said about himself to be true, that he is the son of God, then you have a choice to make about Jesus. Friend, the most important question that you'll ever answer is this. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we need you. I pray that you would help us this, these next few minutes to have a heart that is open to the gospel. God, a heart that is open to the Holy Spirit illuminating these truths and And I don't know the spiritual condition of every person in this room. And it's not very often that I preach a message that really is solely targeting those who don't know about their their eternity. Lord, this is one of those. And I'm begging you, Lord, even right now, that your Holy Spirit would fill this place in a way that is almost tangible to us. That we know that you are with us here. That your Holy Spirit is illuminating, shedding light on the truth. And that we would then be willing not just to intellectually assent to the truth, but to make a choice. God, if there's anyone here today that does not know you as Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit right now would begin working in their hearts to convince them of the things that John spent his time convincing us of. Lord, we need you. pray that you bless the reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, it's officially football season. Say, we were just talking about the Holy Spirit. Why are we talking about football now? Well, today is the opening Sunday of the NFL. College football started last week. And based on the teams that we root for, we can expect either a season of disappointment or a season of hope. I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. So you know what kind of season I'm going to have. If you're a Vikings fan, we'll be in the same therapy group at the end of the season. We know these things to be true. One thing that leaves me, we have some Kansas City Chiefs fans in here, and we don't like you very much. Because your season will probably end well this year. Now, one thing that leaves me scratching my head this time of year is how much people talk about sports. You know, I don't, I don't listen to sports radio. I don't really get into the commentary um, I, don't, I don't turn on ESPN and, and just watch and listen to what they're saying because most of the talk is just one person, one person trying to push their opinions by yelling louder than the other guy. And, and what's amazing is that two different people, I mean, these two people are watching the same game and they come away with completely different perspectives. One guy has maybe this background, maybe he's an offensive guy and And his background is on offense, so he views things from this angle. The other guy, maybe he's a defensive guy, and this is his experience. This is where he's coming from. They can look at the same thing and see it two different ways. And and, uh, I remember this happened uh, in a a real-life example for me. A couple of years ago, I was driving along Arrowhead Parkway right there near Culver's, and, and, uh, and I was probably looking at the sign to see what the flavor of the day was, okay? 
Because that's what you do when you drive by Culver's. Well, but I looked up and, and I, I, I had a red light, so I pulled up to a stop. And this lady coming this way came and turned left to turn west onto Arrowhead Parkway. And somebody coming out of Menards went straight and boom, right in front of me. They collided. And I remember looking up in that moment and I looked up to see if she had an arrow or not. And sure enough, she had a green arrow. And right when I looked up, it that green arrow turned to yellow and then to red. So in my mind, she clearly had the right of way and the person coming from Menards had run the red light. So I get out to check on her and was talking to her and the other person gets out and then, and then uh, she gets out and of course she's upset and, and she's like, I don't know what I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. I said, well, you had a green arrow and then two other people came up and said, oh yeah, she, she took the turn and she wasn't supposed to. This guy had the green light and then she heard them saying that and she agreed with them and I was like, I, I said, no, I, you had a green arrow and she said, no, I don't know if I did, I didn't really see it. So she went with them, and, and, and she got herself, basically got herself in trouble as, as to being at, at fault there in that accident. And, and I was thinking how interesting it was that you have all of these different people, the same thing happens in front of all of us. And, and I have a perspective, she has the wrong perspective, these other two have the wrong perspective too. But we all had a, a different perspective on the same thing. We were looking at the same thing but coming at it from different angles. And in many ways, that's the beauty of the Gospels. You know, and, and I'm not saying that one is wrong and one is right. I'm saying that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they watched, they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' Jesus's life, but their backgrounds and their mindsets impacted how they told their stories. They saw it from different angles. They, they don't contradict each other in any way. They, they, there's no, there are no mistakes in what they say. They're just coming at it from different perspectives. Matthew wrote to the Jews to portray Jesus as king. He was presenting Jesus as king that he came to rule and have authority. And I believe if they would have accepted him as king that he would have brought the kingdom. But they didn't. They rejected him. Mark comes and gives a snapshot to the Romans and presents Jesus as a humble servant. Luke writes to the Greeks and portrays Jesus as the son of man. He's a man but he's sinless and perfect. And then John comes along and he's not writing to one portion or one demographic. No, John writes to the world and he presents Jesus Christ as the divine son of God. He majors on the deity of Jesus Christ. Je Jesus is the God man and the other gospels highlight his humanity. But John comes along and highlights his deity. The other gospels, they start with human genealogies. If you'll notice, they start with genealogies. They're, they're portraying Jesus in his human side. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His genealogy is an eternal genealogy. He's pointing out that Jesus Christ is deity. Uh, John's material is over 90% unique to, from the other gospels. He, he's coming at it from a different angle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they primarily deal with Jesus' public actions and how he dealt with the crowds. But John's discourse really is uh, private and primarily it gives a glimpse into conversations that he was having with individuals. Matthew and Mark and Luke, they spend much time 
on what Jesus did in practice. But John spends most of his time dealing with who Jesus is as a person. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he come from a different angle? Well, it's not just so that we would have a historical account of what Jesus did, but that we would have a spiritual account of who Jesus is. Yes, he did many things, but we need to know who he was, who he is. The Gospels aren't a biography of Jesus Christ's life. If the Gospels were a biography of his life, then they failed because they left much out of his life. And we're told, I already read the verse at the end of John chapter 21, that, that, that there, were, there were many other things that John couldn't even include because there wasn't room. And, and one man wrote this, a gospel is rather the telling of the story of Jesus in such a way that the unique significance of his person and work impacts the reader, enabling him or her to meet Jesus for themselves and be guided in following him. Meaning that we're not just here to look at what Jesus did. We're not just here to find out the, the exploits of his miracles and the exploits of his power. No, we are here reading John to find out who Jesus is so that we can meet Jesus, the person. John doesn't give us the entire life story of Jesus. He leaves many things out. It was written, though, to introduce us to the glory and majesty of Jesus while also conveying his approachability, and his love for us. John gives us the opportunity to know who God is through Jesus Christ. We get to be a fly on the wall, if you will, and see the, what's happening on the inside. It brings the holy God, who's the creator of the heaven and the earth, the creator of the universe. It brings him down to a perceptible level that we can begin to wrap our minds around. It's not commentary, it's not opinions about the big game. No, these are realities about a big God who came to earth to make himself known to mankind. John likely wrote this gospel some 60 years after Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven. He was an old man writing from memory, writing from recall with the help of the Holy Spirit. And as he wrote, I imagine him thinking back to the prevailing question... ...of Jesus Christ's day, which is this. Are you the Christ? Are you the one that's been promised? Are you the one that we've been looking for? And I, I don't know how many times it was asked in reality. We're given it a few times in the scriptures... ...but I imagine it came up a lot. Christ is the Greek word uh, for the Hebrew name Messiah. It means the anointed one or the chosen one. The Jews had waited centuries for the chosen one... To come, And they wanted to know if Jesus was him. They were, this, this Messiah, this chosen one, was going to come and redeem them and deliver them. And, and so he came along and they said, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And when he did, they didn't like his answer. They picked up stones to, to kill him. The answer divided the people. Some said, yes, he's the one. Look at the things that he's doing. Others said, no, he's not the one. He's from Nazareth. There's no way he can be the right guy. This isn't what we are expecting a king to look like. You know, they thought they were looking for someone to deliver them from the Romans under, under whom they were under control and bondage. They were, they were in, as slaves, in essence, to the Roman rule. And Jesus came 
And they thought maybe he'll deliver us from the Romans. But that's not what he came to do. He came to deliver them from something far worse than Romans. A bigger problem than, than the Romans. No, he came to deliver them from the power and the penalty of their sins. So John writes this gospel. And he says, I've gathered all of this evidence. I've gathered all of this evidence to prove one thing. That Jesus is the Christ. So you will believe it. So how does he go about that? Well, John used signs to give evidence to the deity of Christ. He used signs to give evidence of the deity of Christ. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John is clearly referring to the book that he's written. So he's written this book, he's written this gospel and as they come down to the end of it, they know he's referring to the signs that John just talked about. He's like, here are some signs that Jesus did. He did many others in the presence of his disciples. There were many more signs I could have included, but I've just included these. And so what does he mean by signs? Well, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter got up and preached on the day of Pentecost, he talked about miracles, wonders, and signs. And a miracle is an operation that produces a result. Uh, when Christ performed miracles, he was manifesting his supernatural power. And people were like, wow, that's incredible. Did you see what he just did? But many people stopped there. They're like, that was impressive. Then they went about their way. The other word that Peter uses is wonders. And wonder is less about the act and more about the effect produced by the act on the people who witness it. Uh, so if somebody does something incredible, you're like, wow, you're wondering how they did that. You're ignorant about the power that allowed the person to do what they just did. Uh, but uh, but uh, that, uh, that's a miracle and a wonder. But a sign is different. A sign is not a miracle or, or a wonder. No, a sign points to the value of the thing that has been done. Meaning a sign isn't just a fun act that makes people wonder how you did it. There's a deeper meaning. There's a greater purpose for the sign. Uh, for instance, I, I, I was watching this magician, and maybe you saw this. Um, there's a magician on the streets of a large city, maybe New York City, and, and he's got these two very large glass boxes. And in one of the boxes, there are four or five people standing in the box. And then maybe a couple hundred feet away, there's an empty glass box. And so the boxes are on wheels and he has these people uh, uh, turn the boxes while a curtain comes down and you can't see. Now remember, there's one box, let's say the box is over in that corner, one box, the other box is over there. They're not, they're not close to each other. So they, the curtain comes down and two sets of people turn the box on wheels in the middle of the street and everyone's like, what's going on here? Well, then they drop the curtain and I'm not kidding you, the people that were in that box a minute ago suddenly appear in that box over there. And it's on the internet, it's got to be true. I saw it with my own eyes on the screen. So I was like, whoa, what in the world, how in the world could that be possible? And, and what I was thinking was, uh, there's, that, there's something up that magician's sleeve. He, he's, he, he's doing something that obviously we're not seeing, it's, it's a sleight of hand, it's, it's something that he's kind of deceiving the crowd with, 
you know, there's something beyond that. And I kind of went about my way. Well, see, when Jesus did a miracle or Jesus did something that John talks about in the book of John, a sign, it wasn't so people would say, oh, well, that was pretty cool. Let's move on to the market. No, when John includes the signs that Jesus did in this book, he was, the signs are there to sh- reveal something bigger about Jesus. It's not just, oh, that's really cool. No, a sign is more value than that. It's an act that proves something. And the meaning of the signs in the New Testament always are meant to prove something about God. Now, there are some movements out there that major on signs in today's religious economy. There are some denominations that major on the signs. For example, um, those that, that use the sign of, of tongues um, in their services. Well, tongues were a sign for the unbelieving Jews that God was fulfilling prophecy and speaking to all the nations in their own languages. And if you understand New Testament tongues, then you know that the hearer understood the languages that were being spoken. It wasn't just random rambling. It wasn't just simply noise. No, it's a sign. And that's how we know that there's something not quite right about the way it's being used in churches today. Because in churches today, it just makes you go, wow, that's really cool. But it's not revealing something greater about God. But, this, but, the, but tongues are meant to. They're there for a sign. And, and, and so a sign is meant to reveal something different or greater or something that wasn't known before. That's what John was doing. He was using signs to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. And he makes it clear from our text that his intention in writing is to give signs that reveal something. So John used signs. Um, John also was selective in the evidence that he used regarding the deity of Jesus. So he used signs, but he was also very selective. And in this outline, I got from someone else, but, but it helped kind of framework the structure that I'm using today. But he was selective in the way that he chose to present the, the material. Many other signs, it says in verse 30, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. So John was selective. He, in fact, he, in his whole gospel... John only uses, he only chooses to use seven signs in the whole book. Not again that he was struggling to come up with examples. No, but that he had to just pick the ones that he felt were significant enough or necessary. So the signs that John uses in this book, and we'll look at these as we go through the series. In John 2, Jesus, the first first public miracle you might say. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. And this was his first miracle, and at this point, people were starting to take note of Jesus. John in 4, John also uses the sign of Jesus healing the nobleman's son without even going to see him. And that proved that just, God, just Jesus Christ's word has power. He didn't have to go physically touch this nobleman's son. No, he said, let him be healed, and he was healed from long distance. John chapter 5, the third sign is he heals the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And he did that sign on the Sabbath day, which that was a big problem for the Pharisees, that he was healing on the Sabbath day. But he was proving that um, in that, that he's Lord even of the Sabbath. And that, that his, his working and his manifestation of power is not limited to, to the ideas of man and the religious ideas of the men of those days. 
in John chapter 6, the fourth sign was he fed the 5,000 men, not even counting those uh, women and children. He fed them with five loaves and two fishes. If nothing else, that proved to his disciples that there's no limitation to his power, even if they don't have faith. In John chapter 6, again, Jesus, number, number 5, Jesus walks on water. And he proved that he has power even over the weather and even over the wind. And, and, and they said his disciples, that one was for his disciples, because his disciples said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and seas obey him? And the sixth one is John 9, and he healed the man that was born blind. Again, he did it on the Sabbath day. And at that point, I wonder if he just was at that point just doing it to make the Pharisees mad. Just to let them know, hey, I can heal whoever I want to, whenever I want to, however I choose to. And my power is greater than your religious rituals. In number 7, John 11, Jesus, maybe in the crowning one, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Proving that he has victory over man's greatest fear, which is death itself. And John, and you say, well, why would John just give those signs? Well, I believe this. It goes back to John 1.18 when John said this. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And what John is saying is that I'm giving you evidence to prove to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Christ. That he is who he claimed to be. And here's your evidence. Third, his purpose for the evidence was to convince men not just to know something, but to believe something. So he gave them signs and he was selective. And then his purpose for the selected signs was to convince men to believe. Again, look at verse 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. There are two uses of the same word believe in this verse. The first, the first use, it says these are written that ye might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So understand, that's intellectual. Meaning that it's the result of the sign. So uh, if it's almost like John says this. Okay, here's the sign. Uh, for instance, he, he turned water into wine. And, and he, he healed the nobleman's son. And he walked on water. And he, rose, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and, and he healed the blind man. He's got these signs. So here, here are the signs. Here's your evidence. Okay. Now the evidence reveals to you that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Christ. He came. He's the anointed one. He came to redeem his people. He's the son of God. He really is deity. That's the intellectual knowledge that you've got to have. You've got to believe that if you're going to have eternal life. You must, you must believe and John doesn't say believe without any evidence. See, that's what, one thing is interesting that, that you might hear the, uh, the atheists or the agnostics say, well, you Christians, all you have is blind faith. Well, I don't know um, how blind the faith is when you've got a man who is an eyewitness to Jesus Christ writing and giving us evidence from the life of Jesus Christ that he saw with his own two eyes. And he wrote it in a book that's been preserved and proven over the course of time. 
We have evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And I don't know anybody that was there at the Big Bang to write about that one. There are no eyewitnesses to that. And I'm not trying to be critical of someone who might have a, a different perception or a different belief. But I am saying the, blind is, or the Bible is not simply built on blind faith. There are eyewitnesses that give us evidence to these things. And I believe it takes a lot more faith to believe in something that nobody was around to see. And is pure speculation that it ever even happened. Now we have evidence written and preserved for us in God's word. And John is telling us if you believe the evidence, if you simply look and take it at face value, you really have to be convinced that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, he turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 with bread and fish. He healed the lame. He walked on water. He healed the dead man. The evidence is there to convince us that Jesus is more than just a man. The second use of the word believe, though, is in this verse. It says that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So the second use of the word belief is more than intellectual. That believing is, is implying not just an intellectual assent, but a willful choice. He says that believing you might have life. See, that refers to making a choice. In other words, you first believe by being convinced of the evidence. But then you make a choice based on the evidence that you're convinced of. Once your mind is convinced, then you willfully surrender yourself to it by coming to a decision. You know, and, and, and you say, well, this is really deep. I don't think it's that deep. Now, I mean, think about this chair right here. And you maybe have seen an illustration like this before. Um, how many of you have ever sat in a chair before? You can raise your hand. It's okay, okay? You've sat in a chair. How many of you ever sat in a chair and had it hold you up just fine? Okay. I think all of us could say yes. I mean, how many of us have sat in a chair and broken it? Okay, so a few of us. But on the scale of percentages, that's a very low percentage. Okay, 1% probably way less than that. Of chairs that I've sat in that I broke. Okay, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> but here's the truth. Okay, you have knowledge. You have previous knowledge of chairs. You have plenty of evidence in your life to believe that if you sit in a chair, it's going to hold you. So you have that evidence. You believe the chair will hold you. So how do you prove that you honestly, truly, really believe that this chair can hold you? Walk away? No. What do you do? You got to sit in it. So listen, to this point, all I have done is had intellectual knowledge based on experience and evidence of the past that this chair is going to hold me. Lord, if this chair breaks right now, <laughs> please, for the sake of the illustration, sit in the chair. That made a scary noise. <laughs> no, see, that's the difference between believing that Jesus is the Christ... Yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed one. I believe that. Believing that Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, I believe he's the son of God. 
I believe he came from heaven. I, yeah, I believe that. He is. Yeah. Okay, you know that. You believe that. But have you sat in the chair? Have you taken it from an intellectual knowledge to a willful choice? When I was, uh, this is probably 15 years ago, my, my family and I were at Lake Tahoe in California. And we were just, you know, suffering for Jesus out there and in the beauty of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And Lake Tahoe is a beautiful place. My father-in-law and I decided uh, that we were going to get on a parasail. Now, a parasail is basically a large umbrella that two people sit in. And it's got a, this one had about an 800-foot rope. Okay, so that's way high. I know it's at an angle. It's still 500-something feet off the ground straight up from the first surface of the water. So we got the bright idea, let's do this. Well, we get, we sit down in the little seat together, and I look up in this huge apparatus. I mean, it's a giant umbrella, basically, and, and it's got all of these, you know, you got bars, you got a seat. And I look at the rope, and literally the rope connected to the parasail was one knot. And I thought, this can't be right. And I, I literally was like, is that, literally, that's all that holds us to the boat, what happens if that knot comes loose? And he said, that knot won't come loose. And I said, well, how do we know that? He said, because I've been doing this for however many years, I've never had the knot come loose. I said, well, but I, I mean, it doesn't look real to me that this could actually hold. And he said, okay, let's talk about this. Then he pushed the button and we just went, you know, so he didn't let me talk about it anymore. No, but the truth is, though, uh, I had to come to believe in the evidence that the expert was telling me. He said, I know you've never seen this happen. I know you've never watched this work, but I can tell you I've taken countless people up in this parasail and I've never had the knot come undone. And I had to believe that, but listen, I could say I believe it all day, but I didn't prove I believe it till I sat down in that seat. And that's where we're at today, folks. Is I believe that we, we are in a, in a situation that we know about Jesus Christ we know who he claims to be. We know that he says he's the Messiah. We know that he says he's the Son of God. We believe that. We trust that. The Bible gives us evidence to it. Yes, we believe it. But I would submit to you that there are countless people out there who claim to be children of God, who claim that they have placed their faith in God, but all they've ever done is believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they've never sat in the chair. It's not enough to simply believe that he is who he says he is. James says in James 2.10, the devils believe and tremble. Satan knows that Jesus is the Christ. Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. His demons know that. It's not genuine belief until you make a choice. And you can say, well, I believe God created the universe. I believe that he reigns over it. You can say that all day on Sunday. I believe God is the king. I believe that he rules and reigns. You come to church and you say, God is the king. He reigns. But your life during the week proves whether or not you truly believe that. If you say that he's your king, but you don't live and surrender to his will the rest of the week, then that choice proves you're not really convinced he's the king. Understand this, intellectual knowledge of something is not saving faith. And that's what John says. But you cannot get to saving faith without an intellectual knowledge of something. 
See, John's purpose is that we get to the place that we believe something about Jesus. He uses signs to prove it. He gives us evidence to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah who came to deliver people from their sins. That Jesus is the Son of God. Not a Son of God like the cults will try to convince us of. No, the Son of God. And at one point, Jesus asked the people, who do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. See, they weren't ready to admit that he was the son of God. That's a big question. If they believed he was the son of God, they would have been readily accepting of him as Messiah. But until they believed, and listen, even more personally, until you believe that Jesus is the son of God, you cannot have eternal life. And it's not enough to intellectually accept it. You must believe enough to make a choice. And you might think, well, it's no big deal if I do or don't. No, realize that Jesus came to earth because we are sinners. He came to this planet and lived a sinless life so he could die on a cross and pay for our sins. Otherwise, we have no hope of paying for our sins. We can't do anything about our, our sins in our own strength, in our own In our own will, we can't do anything about it. He came to shed his blood to wash away your sins. And he, the Messiah, came to deliver you from your sins. Listen, he is the Son of God and he offers you eternal life. And according to John 20, 31, the only way to have eternal life, to spend eternity with God in heaven, is to believe by placing your trust in Jesus Christ to pay for your sins. By faith. Not works. In Christ alone. It's time to make a choice. Listen, if you believe that he's the son of God, you have no other option but to trust Christ for eternal life. If you really believe he's the son of God, what other plan can you come up with that's better than his? See, either you don't believe he's the son of God or or you do. And if you don't believe it, then I'm not surprised that you've rejected his offer of eternal life. But if you say you believe it, why haven't you made the decision? Why haven't you made the choice to place your trust in Jesus Christ alone? If you admit that he's the son of God, but you won't receive his offer of eternal life, there's a major disconnect in your thinking. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life? Have you? Have you come to the end of yourself recognizing you can't pay for your own sins? Have you? If you want eternal life, you must choose Jesus. The signs prove Jesus is the Son of God. Eternal life comes through the Son of God. Therefore, you must trust in the Son of God if you want eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you want eternal life? A life better than the one you have? You say, I'm pretty content with my life. No, I'm not just talking about life in heaven. I'm talking about a life life that's fulfilling. A life of peace. A life of hope. Eternal life. 
Listen, if that sounds good to you, the first question today is this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And if yes, then the second question is this. Will you place your trust in him alone for eternal life? You know, this, this text made me think of Peter. And it's easy to get caught up in Peter's mistakes. I think Peter's sandals were in his mouth more than they were on his feet sometimes. He talked big and he fell hard. But in Matthew 16, 16, when Christ said, who do you say that I am? You know what Peter said? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. You know what Jesus was saying is that, Peter, you've seen the evidence and you made a choice. You've seen the evidence and you sat in the chair. You've seen the evidence and because the evidence is so clear, then, Peter, it's not, it's not just you coming to an intellectual knowledge. No, the Father has revealed this to you and you made your decision. And he said, blessed are you because you made the decision. And listen, what I want to tell you this, this morning is this, that, that the evidence is there. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. John gives us signs. The other Gospels give us evidence. If no other evidence is needed than this, that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And if you believe that this morning, then you have a choice to make right now. And it is time to stop saying you believe it and, and sit in the chair. To stop saying, yes, I believe in the evidence and make a choice to submit yourself to the evidence. John's message is this this morning. Here's the evidence, now choose. Here's the evidence, now choose. And if you are convinced in your mind, then make a choice. And if you will choose to willfully Surrender to what you believe. You can have eternal life in Christ. Belief is the difference between life and death. It's not enough to know it. You must choose it. Life and death are at stake today. And I don't mean to embarrass him, but I'm just happy. We've got a special guest this morning. His name is Andre back here. Andre, you can answer these questions. You can, stay, you can just stay seated right there. Andre, you've been in church quite a bit in your life, haven't you? Yeah, up till this week, you've believed that Jesus is Christ, right? You believe that he is the son of God, right? But Wednesday, Andre and I were talking and I was going through the gospel with Andre and come to find out he's lived his whole life believing that Jesus is the Christ, his whole life believing that Jesus is the Son of God. But it wasn't until Wednesday of this week that Andre realized that's not enough. It's not enough to simply know he's the Christ. It's not enough to simply know he's the Son of God and say you believe it. No, Andre said, oh, I have a choice to make. And on Wednesday night in my office after church, Andre cried out to God in humility and faith and asked him to finally... Save me. And now it's more than just head knowledge, isn't it? It's more than just I know who he is. Now it's I know him. And, and I know this is a simple message and it's one you've heard before. 
But listen, the Holy Spirit can use a simple truth in our lives if we will say, God, whatever you want me to do right now. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. There is evidence to prove it. But you have a choice to make. If you died today and say, but I knew you were the Christ. I knew you were the Son of God. That's not enough. You must place your faith a choice. You must place your faith by choice in the payment that Jesus Christ made for your sins on the cross. Come to the end of yourself and recognize you can't do this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm telling you, you can know everything you've known your whole life, but like Andre realize on a day like this it's not enough it's time to make a choice it's time to submit yourself to the knowledge and the evidence that has been revealed to us listen the evidence is there jesus is the christ jesus is the son of god and if he is who he says he is friend what will you do with jesus today what will you do with Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Now I'm just going to be seated for just a moment here. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Do you know that you're saved today? If you know that you're saved, if you know that if you died today, that you'd be on your way to heaven, would you just raise your hand? And just by public testimony, a lot of you, I appreciate that. Okay, you can put your hands down. How many of you, though, that today would say... Uh, listen, I've lived my whole life believing the things you're talking about, but I don't know that I've ever made the choice. I'm not sure that if I died today that I'd be on my way to heaven. This is a very pointed salvation message, and this isn't always what we do, although I try to present the gospel every week, but I'm telling you, this is a pointed decision-making moment in your life right now. And if you were to die today and you would say, I don't know that I'd spend eternity in heaven... I don't know that I have eternal life. Would you just, in humility, and nobody's looking around, would you be willing to just raise your hand and say, I'm not sure. I don't know that I've ever made that choice. I see that hand back here to my left. Thank you, young lady, for that. Anybody else? Looking to my left over your right over here. Anybody in this section that would say, I'm not sure. that if I died today, that I have eternal life. Is there anybody over here? Anybody in the middle sections here, you'd raise your hand. Nobody's looking around. Nobody is, is going to call you out. I'm just going to pray for the one that has raised their hand. I'm going to pray for you and ask that the Lord would, would, would give you the courage to maybe take a step this morning. Anybody to my right, your left, and you'd say, I'm not sure that I, if I die today that I have eternal life. And so by your testimony, most of you would say, I do have eternal life. Okay, let's, let's, let's apply this then to the Christians in the room. Is your relationship with God, has it turned into simple head knowledge? Or is your life with Jesus Christ something that you are convinced of, you believe in, it's real for you, it's not just something you know about, you know him and your walk with God is real. Listen, that's where we ought to be. That's what he wants. But I'm afraid that many of us, if we've been safe for any length of time, 
Our walk with God is simply head knowledge. And we know all about him, but we don't know him. If that's the case in your life, Christian, would you be willing to respond to the message this morning that says, I believe it intellectually, but boy, I'm not living it on a faith level. To the person that raised their hand this morning, would you be willing? We have, we have men and, and women down here. We'd love to show you from God's word how you can know for sure that if you died today, you'd be on your way to heaven. I know that's a scary proposition to come forward, but listen, it's, it, this is the best time to make that decision while the Holy Spirit is working on your heart and convincing you that you have a choice to make. Would you be willing to step out? Let's stand together. Every head reigns bowed. If the Lord's working in your heart about anything that's been preached this morning, would you be willing to come forward and make a decision for Christ? Whether as a Christian or as an, an, a, someone who has never placed their faith in Jesus, would you be willing to do that this morning? The altars are open. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you this morning. I pray that you'd work in our lives. I thank you for the clarity of your word and for the simplicity of the message that it really is a, a pool shallow enough for a child to wade in and yet we could never get to the bottom of it as we try to mine its depths. Lord, we love you. We need you. We pray that you'd speak and give courage to those that have raised their hands, Lord, this morning. I also pray that you'd help every Christian here to decide I don't want a walk with God that's only knowledge by intellect. I want knowledge by faith. I want to know him and have a real walk with God that's beyond just what I know about him. God, I believe there's something to apply to every person in the room and pray that you'd help us to have the courage to step out this morning and make the choice that you're leading us to. In Jesus' name, amen.